on March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits, stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? It's going really well. How are you today? I am doing well, Lance. We are knee deep or even hip deep into June. The summer is here. And no better time to talk to our confidential informant, the Muddy River Fact Checker. What a delight it is to have him on the show and regale us with all of his knowledge in regards to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. He is a well of details and facts and research. He does not say anything that he hasn't fully vetted and and uh, made sure that the content is 100% accurate. And really, we could talk to him for hours and it would be it would be riveting every every single uh, every single detail he gives us would be informative. Yeah, and we have talked to him uh, for hours. <laughs> um, not so much on the show yet, but he has been on before in season two, Lance, in an episode titled "Gardner Heist Minutia." And again, that is exactly what I'm talking about with his attention to detail and and his uh, very clear explanation of the of the facts. Yeah, so make sure to check that out. It is really interesting. A lot of people like that episode very much because it, you know we really did a deep dive on a certain a couple of certain issues there. One being. Uh, Rick Abbott, the one of the security guards who was working at the Gardner the night it was robbed, and the crime scene photos, which Muddy really thinks are quite suspicious. And so check that episode out. It was really great. Episode uh, six in season two. Yeah, I'll say the uh, the famous crime scene photos. Uh, Rick Abbott, who was duct taped and tied and put down in the uh, basement, sort of in the boiler room, is now that it is gone by the way of crime lore in Boston. Right. And we talk about Abbott a bit in this episode with Muddy, though Muddy calls him Abath. So I just want to mention that there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, and we talk about a lot of stuff in this episode, Lance. Um, the stuff about Abbott and the Gardner heist comes more in the second half. The first half, we sort of ask him his thoughts on the season so far and what he thought was about the recovery effort and what Casey Sherman said and what Turbo Paul from episodes one and two, what they said uh, in this season so far. Yeah, what an what a interesting relationship they have, Turbo and, and Muddy. It's starting to play out in a uh, <laughs> Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier type of way where we, we have to get them going sort of toe-to-toe 
uh, in a controlled environment. I don't want to say there's any bad blood between the two because no. they they are friendly. Um, but yeah, I think what you're getting at is is we want to get some kind of debate going. Right. We need both of their opinions to be out there and debated and sort of sort of you know flushed out. Uh, what they have to say is very important, and we can't get caught up in a back and forth that just is uh, distracting the overall goal, which is to get the artwork returned to the museum. And I think if they had a, uh, in a controlled environment, they could really make some significant headway in this. Right. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully we can get that scheduled for uh, the first half of this season, Lance. And, yeah. uh, but I do, before we play the audio, the interview with Muddy, I want to mention some shorthand that we use because he, a lot of names come up, and I just want to make sure that we get all these names out there to you so you fully understand who is being talked about and why. And so it starts with Anthony Amore, who is the director of security at The Gardener and has been for several years. So he is talked about a bit. Chris Marinello is talked about a bit, Lance. He's from Art Recovery International. Yep. And he's also spoken about in episode two and one, really, with uh, with Casey Sherman and Turbo. So we uh, definitely recommend you going back and listening to those. Casey Sherman recently wrote a book called Hunting Whitey. Which you read. <laughs> that I devoured. It was excellent. Make sure to pick that one up called Hunting Whitey. And then Turbo Paul was in episode two, so some of these topics end up leading back to what was said in those episodes, so I think you maybe want to go listen to those. Arthur Brand, Lance, is someone who has spoken about quite a bit in this episode, as, uh, and that now he is an expert in art recovery, isn't he? Yeah, Arthur Brand is often called the Indiana Jones of art recovery. He actually dropped a little bit of a uh, teaser for something on Twitter over the weekend by saying that he had a big lead in a case. No one knows if this is in regards to the uh, Gardner heist, but uh, yeah, he's someone who's very present in in this uh, particular world of uh, art recovery, and we had him on season one, and he's a really, really cool guy. <laughs> he really is. Really smart guy. Yeah, he really is, and he's got a book coming out soon called Hitler's Horses about uh, some uh, stolen art, uh, stolen by the Nazis, actually, during World War II that he uh, helped recover, went undercover in the in the underground uh, stolen art world and helped to recover these horses, which uh, it's an incredible story. I think he did a TED Talk on it, too. And so yeah, he did. Yeah, so yep. it's led to this book. A lot of these people that we're talking about right now are authors. Anthony Amore has written several books. Casey Sherman has written several books. Arthur Brand has. Ulrich Bozer comes up a bit. Uh, we had Ulrich on on these airwaves in season one a couple times, two or three times we spoke to him. He wrote a great book called The Gardener Heist. Make sure to check that out. And also, I believe Muddy brings up uh, TRC Auto Electric, which is the auto repair shop that Carmelo uh, Merlino was uh, affiliated with. He owned it, and Carmelo Merlino is often lumped into the conversation about the uh, Gardner Heist because he was uh, a member of the New England Mafia. He was the underboss in the Patriarch of Crime family. And Steve Kirchin has spoken about, who is a famous journalist in Boston, also an author, wrote a book on the Gardner Thieves called Master Thieves. Excellent book. And Robert Whitman is also discussed. Robert Whitman is also an author, wrote a book called Priceless, which is next on my list, Lance. And he, yeah. he uh, started the FBI's art crime division uh, out of Philadelphia, I believe, in the 70s. And we've tried to get him on the show, so it would be great to talk to him as well. 
It'd be great if he returned an email <laughs> and a phone call. <laughs> no, he's probably a really busy guy and yeah. uh, doing a lot with uh, different uh, projects, uh, I, I'm assuming. So, uh, you know, if he's listening, just uh, shoot us a uh, shoot us an email. Love to have you on. So, Lance, this episode feels like us kind of fleshing out what we've been dropped in the middle of and not completely fleshing it out, but sort of hearing another alternative voice and sort of beginning to realize what's going on here. So maybe we'll have to do a reset episode soon where we just speak and we kind of play some clips and we just kind of reset the season before we continue This is The Last Dance, Lance, and we have only nine episodes left. Well, let's see where it takes us. You know, we said that it's The Last Dance, and that's in reference to the the Bulls of the (laughs) 90s, the Chicago Bulls, uh, which is just, you know, that's trending right now, and it just feels a... It, it feels appropriate that this is the last dance, but who knows? Maybe we'll we'll do this season, and the powers that be at the FBI and the powers that be at the museum will maybe make a change in how they're approaching the recovery process because that is what we really wanted to focus on with season three is the new way to offer rewards for all thirteen uh, individual stolen pieces of art. That's right. So we will see where it takes us. It is a, a bendy river. A bendy, muddy river. <laughs> Much like the muddy river right near the Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Let's play the interview with the muddy river fact checker. Roll it. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the podcast, Muddy River Fact Checker. Muddy, how's it going today? Real good. Beautiful day outside today, and uh, people are getting out more. So when you look outside, you think more of the possibilities of what you might actually do when you go out besides wear a mask and get groceries. So Right. And um, you've been, just like the rest of us, confined to your home uh, in isolation in some sense. This must have given you... Uh, a lot of time to dig back into some of the details of the Gardner heist and the recovery process and, um, and you know, voice your opinion on this and, and maybe put some uh, right. research material together. Have you been pretty busy doing that? Right. I ha- Actually, I have been able to focus a little bit more on it just from, you know, activities are limited and less, you know, minor excursions and things. So, yeah, I have been able to do that and I've taken advantage of that to do some you know, review some uh, past things and do more research. And of course, you are uh, you're broadcasting from a submarine in the muddy river in Boston, right near the Gardner Museum, right? Yeah, an undisclosed uh, bend in the muddy river. <laughs> oh, there there are many bends in yeah. the in the in the muddy river. Fortunately, there aren't as many shopping carts and uh, appliances in the muddy river anymore. It's actually pretty clean these days, so that's great. Yes, but uh, you, sir, are still under there. You have your periscope up and you have your eye trained in, honed in on that museum. I do, and I have a little uh, windshield washer, so I keep that periscope clean. (laughs) I love it. Well, uh, what have you thought so far of uh, Empty Frames' return here for season three? Well, I wasn't, I didn't know you were going to do a a season three, and I was really excited when I heard about it. And then I was even more excited. When I heard that you were having uh, Casey Sherman on, I, I think that's great that you had it on, and it was it was an excellent episode. I do have some disagreements about some of the things that he had to say about um, Anthony and Moray, and I have my own 
problems and disagreements on how he does his job. However, I don't have a problem with him writing books, doing lectures. You know, he, he is an investigator with the case. However, his legal powers are limited. He's a private citizen. So I think he sees his job keeping the profile, making sure that people know what the art looks like and, you know, what happened. And so, you know, keeping it in the public consciousness. And, and I would say that all of that, all that work that he does uh, supports that. And also just getting to see him, he's, you know, he's not, doesn't come on strong. And I think he comes off as somebody that people would, if they had some information, might view that his his public image as someone that they would trust and share information with. So all of that is good. I don't have an expectation that the Gardner Museum, as a victim of a crime, has to have um, any kind of investigation into the case. I mean, that's really the FBI's job, and anything that they do, you know, to facilitate that is laudable. And I don't think it's really up to us to decide from the outside how he should be doing the, his job. I think that's between him and the director and the trustees. And I do see many upsides to what he's doing. However, you know, I wish that he would, you know, he puts out these books and then he doesn't do that much media. And when he does, it'd be like, well, you, yeah, I can come on. Oh, we'll talk about your book. Well, then he comes on, they talk, and they talk first, you know, generally people will say how great the Gardner Museum is. Okay, so that's, you know, bing, that's good for the Gardner Museum. It's like an advertisement for the Gardner Museum. And then he'll discuss his book, and then they'll get into some, you know, very general softball kind of questions like, how's the investigation going? You know, and he gives, you know, some pretty light answers on that. So I, what I would like him to do is write a book about the Gardner heist. You know, they put out Stolen, which was really a hardcover brochure. It's a coffee table and type book, 36 pages with like 850 words. So I don't really consider that a book. But, you know, back in, um, in 2015, Tom Mashberg wrote an article for the New York Times. And he said that when they wrote Stealing Rembrandts, that they didn't discuss the Gardner heist because it was, uh, because it was a delicate time in the investigation. So that was 2011 was a delicate time in the investigation. Okay, well, now we're at 2020. So it's not, it can't be a delicate time all the time. But the story seems to have a rolling narrative where back in 2015, it was, it was DiMuzio and Reisfelder that did it. And now it's, it's Donati. And, and, and the story changes. And there's never any reference to the old story. So I don't find the narrative that's out there credible. I'm not saying that I'm right about everything, but I think it lacks a certain coherence and, you know, it's not consistent with critical thinking, which we all say, oh, people should have critical thinking. You know, I don't, I don't see a lot of critical thinking going on. This is what we think and here's why. I see a lot of, you know, bobbing and weaving and rope-a-doping going on and not any real serious dialogue about it. So for me, that's a problem. I think your points about Amore and his uh, books are are good points. Um, it, it's awareness. I, I do wonder if if that'll change at any point and a Gardner heist book from Amore would come out. I think that would be welcome from us. 
Um, but I think he would get probably a ton of blowback if he was getting paid for all of it. You know what I mean? I think that, that could be a tender, uh, situation for him. So maybe that's why that hasn't been broached yet. Also, maybe it couldn't help. I mean, maybe after he, maybe he has to wait till he ha till he retires. Right. I could see that. Yeah. There, there has to be some sort of stipulation in there where he can't overtly make money directly, uh, from the, the heist. That's gotta, there's got to be something in there that the board is uh, instructing him on. He might just be conscious of it, you know. And but but with that said, I you know may, maybe you're right, and it is time to tra- to change the strategy there because I would be buying uh, a book from Anthony Amore about the Gardner heist without a doubt. Right. Well, you know, or something, just anything that increases the glassnos, the openness of the discussion. It could be him writing a book, but it, it's not there. So. You have um, eight or nine people at the Globe who've written, ab- who still work there, who've written about the Gardner Heist. Some of them, three of them, it spans 25 years. And you have a lot of these entrenched people that have been on this for a long time, and there hasn't been a lot of other people. It's kind of a closed system. When Casey Sherman came on your program, that was great. It, so it all looks very good. You, you know, Anthony Amore is a very personable guy. He's out there. He does really care. You know, he does all that. But then, then you see what happens when somebody like Casey Sherman, who's an author, who's a columnist at the Herald, he calls and he says, hey, I, this guy, Arthur Brand, has some concerns about the case. And all of a sudden, it's like some guy's Twitter. It's like, it doesn't matter whether it's on Twitter or not, or where it appeared. Casey Sherman is someone that he knows, and he should know that if, he's, if he says the question requires an answer... He need, he deserves a, an answer or a logical reason why it can't be answered, not this you know brushback. And so I think um, Casey Sherman was offended by that, and and I think and for the public because people there should be some kind of mechanism for people to have this dialogue, and that then Casey Sherman um, tried to foster. I do believe what your previous guest Henry said about what happened uh, to him. I think it's credible. What happened was, from my standpoint, and I wrote about it in contemporaneously, was that Turbo Paul, the only probably one of the few people on January 1st, read Chris Marinello's newsletter. And Chris Marinello was saying that he was someone that, you know, had set himself up, he's an attorney, to be an escrow and do the legal legwork if you wanted to return the art. So Paul, in retweeting it, I don't think intentionally at all, it didn't put Chris Marinello in a bad light. He said Chris Marinello was sort of like the official escrow attorney to go to, which is not what Chris Marinello said. So at this point, Paul has 12 followers on Twitter. And um, for some reason, Anthony Amore decides to retweet it and says it's fake news. And then Marinello did the same thing or, or said, reacted to it too, and said something about stupid people. I mean, it's just like really getting defensive and thin-skinned over nothing that could have easily been cleared up. And then, then I do think that Paul's reaction was not really in his own best interest. But um, I, I really think it was uncalled for that, you know, it's either you're completely ignored, you know, or they're so fast and loose with details and then they can get so very sensitive about other aspects. And it just points to the fact that we're, you know, that there, there's something going on here that's bigger than what's 
part of the legitimate discussion and it needs to be widened out a bit. I just want to clarify, uh, you're speaking of Christopher Marinello, who is the CEO and founder of Art Recovery International. Yes. And he lists himself, he is a lawyer, and his bio says uh, Christopher A. Marinello is one of the world's foremost experts in recovering stolen, looted, and missing works of art. So this is the, uh, just for frame of reference for people out there, that is the Christopher Marinello that you're speaking of. Right. He wrote the newsletter and said he had this he had set himself up that way. I would certainly think he would be a, a person to go to. He's not necessarily the person to go to. So there was a little bit of a confusion, but I think it could have easily been addressed, you know, without the hostility, which was not initiated, I feel, but from Paul. Yeah. So why is it, do you think, that people get this thin skin about them when it comes to the recovery effort, especially when people are listing themselves as a uh, foremost expert in recovering stolen, looting, looted, and missing works of art? Is it just personal because they want to be the ones to control it all? Or do you think that uh, there's some legit gripes here that we just don't know about? Well, I can see why Chris Marinello would would not appreciate his the mistaken definition of what he was trying to say. And he saw that Anthony Amore was criticizing it. So clearly Anthony Amore is troubled by it. And he he's trying to have a good working relationship with Anthony Amore. So I can see he would be frustrated about it, you know, but Twitter, you know, there's a hair trigger on Twitter and, you know, people say things that, that they regret and you have to, you have to show some restraint, which I think that they, they let us down. I'm not so much concerned about what Marinello did, I just think that Amore getting so, you know, retweeting it and calling it fake news, you know, when most of the time he just won't even acknowledge the people that are not part of the the people who are allowed to discuss the Gardner heist, which is a very small universe of people. And, you know, people are only, you know, slowly let in. So he, he did make a mistake. I, I agree that it was. But the other thing was Paul had a link to uh, Marinello's newsletter which probably no one would read if it wasn't for him anyway. I mean, this is a small universe of people. And so, and, you know, potentially one of someone who has the art might be one of them. But if you went to the link, Marinello very clearly laid out what exactly he was saying. So I don't really get the overreaction and I don't get the overreaction to Casey Sherman bringing up Arthur Brand. Arthur Brand was made by Anthony Amore in terms of being a media, being a person that's quoted and, and so forth in this case. Back on June 19th of three years ago, Nina Siegel wrote an article for Bloomberg. And now she works at the New York Times, but she was at Bloomberg then. And she wrote this article about how Arthur Brand made a very bold claim that he was going to have the art by the end of the year. And so she went to Amore and, and she wrote, Arthur Brand is one of the few, is one private investigator that Anthony Amore respects. And Anthony Amore said, this is not a word for a quote, Arthur Brand is one of the few people out there who understand this profession, this industry, whatever. And so that, I don't think Nina Siegel had a story without Anthony Amore saying that, because otherwise he's just some guy in, in the Netherlands that no one in the U.S. has ever heard of who thinks he's going to have the art at the end of the year, which was a pretty bold claim. So for some reason, Amore wanted to give him props. Maybe he thought, hey, the guy might be onto something. Why don't I, he seems to want to go public with this for some reason. I'll, I'll help him out. Well, then 
you know, then you let him in. And Arthur Brand is a very uh, capable media person. And he has a lot of media power, talent. And I personally am glad that he's out there because, you know, he's not going to get jerked around in the press. He knows how to handle the press. And, and it's good that, the, you know, that he's out there doing that. So, uh, and he's been, you know, he's been a good citizen of the whole Gardner heist recovery effort again, but it's, it's that they, there's this, you know, closed system and, you know, then you start having a little breach, this combination of Casey Sherman, who, you know, he's kind of a newcomer in terms of the Boston local media market and this guy from the Netherlands. And all of a sudden, you know, it's some guy's Twitter. You know, you can just dismiss that. Well, I do a lot of work on Twitter. So, you know what, just because it happens to be on Twitter that somehow the, the analysis isn't as valid, um, because I see a lot of mistakes in, in from things that, that are done by BUR and Boston Globe, which I've outlined. No one seems to have a problem with that. People keep going back to that well, including me, because they have the access to the people who have the information and you have to, you know, sort it out yourself. You you dropped a couple of bombs there that I don't want to uh, have go unnoticed. Uh, did you say that Anthony Amore essentially made Arthur Brand? In terms of him being a media force in, in Gardner Heist, yes. He was never mentioned in terms of the Gardner Heist until he made this claim, which seems very outlandish. And some mocked him. I didn't because I think he had a legitimate lead that he was going to have it at the end of the year. If, if Anthony Amore had said to Nina Siegel, oh, it's not going to happen. It's not in Ireland. This, you know, you shouldn't even be talking to that guy. That's the end. But once he did that, once the Nina Siegel story in Bloomberg went out, then he's getting interviewed on CBS and he's getting interviewed here. He's getting interviewed there. And he's very, very, you know, he's good TV. So that's how it all started. And that it's very difficult. I mean, you guys had that. Miles Connors telling you he couldn't go on your on your podcast because he was going on another podcast. So, you know, you have all these little things going on of who's allowed to have a say and who isn't. And you and I are reinventing that paradigm and um, other people are going to get at the say and people are going to have more quality information out there. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Now, before we move on, I just was wondering what you think of the uh, the current recovery effort and the uh, the things that we did talk about as far as the reward price list and maybe changing some of the wording. You think that stuff matters? First of all, it should be remembered that there is a separate price list on the finial of $100,000, which is about 20 times more than it's worth, although it probably has some kind of cachet or you know extra value if it was the actual stolen one. But there is one on that. And I'm not sure it needs to be laid out in that way. But I do think that if Arthur Brand thinks it would be helpful and some other people say that it is, that the people who are paying the taxes for the investigation and all this have a right to an explanation about why you're doing what you're doing. You know, let's have a conversation about it, not just dismiss people out of hand. If they think it's helpful, then it is helpful. I don't agree with the, I, I do think, I like the fact that they say in good condition, because I think that that puts an incentive on the people who are holding them. You know, all that would have to be negotiated behind the scenes. So I, I, I'm okay. I signed the petition to have the, um, the price list. I don't think it's that essential. I don't, you know, if the, if the art is lost and no one knows where it is, then a price list isn't going to change that. I don't think it's the most essential thing. 
I do think they have professional people to negotiate with it. But if Arthur Brand, who has actually negotiated these kind of things, says he, it would be helpful, then I think we're entitled to a non-rancorous discussion about the pros and cons. Great. Yeah, I think that's a very fair way to uh, look at it. All of these things. If people have, if regular people have a legitimate concern or people with, you know, who have standing, who maybe can't explain every in and out, you know, it would probably take Arthur Brand a couple of hours to explain why that would be helpful. But he has the standing of being someone who's been successful in the field. So let's either give him what he wants or, you know, tell us give us a good explanation why. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've talked about it in the first couple of episodes and uh, maybe a bit in season one. I just don't know how much more we can talk about uh, a priceless recovery effort or or at least changing the recovery effort. We know that there's uh, processes that have to be put into place to make that happen. But do you think that it is that difficult of a of a uh, strategy to sort of re-maneuver and and put put another process out there that is uh, a, a better you know better suited for recovery. Well, it would have to go through the trustees, and it would also have to go through. Um, probably, they would want to know how the investigation investigators feel about it. You know, there are some advantages to the ten million. It's sort of like that. You know, the like um, Willy Wonka's you know golden ticket, ten million. It's very simple. You know, you're trying to do mass marketing you know, that kind of hits people between the eyes. And, you know, once you start breaking it down, maybe you cheapen it a bit. Like, oh, you know, they probably don't have that coup or, you know, whatever. But, you know, it would be a discussion. It would be one more discussion that would be, ad, you know, we're saying going out and discussing the Gardner heist or related art heist and Anthony Mori out there. It's another discussion that would open things up so that you could talk about it, but you'd have to go through the trustees um, it's really not up to Anthony Amore to decide what the reward is. Now, back in December of um, 2017, they raised the reward. You know, and the first article was, this is an ironclad deal, you know, you have until the end of the year. You know, a few weeks before, there, were no, there was another round of articles. Oh, you know, it's time's running out. Uh, and then, of course, two weeks out, later in January, um, they raised it permanently to $10 million. And Ulrich Bozer on your on one of your podcast episodes alluded to the fact that that was all marketing that, you know, they were, they were milking that for as much media as they could, which is what, you know, Mark, you know, people in marketing do and it's good and people love reading the stories. So, you know, everybody wins, but you know, if somebody had come, come around on January 3rd and said, Hey, you know, I have the art, but I want the 10 million, not the 5 million, you know, Anthony's not going to say, well, call back in a couple of weeks, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not real anyway. I mean, anybody, I mean, when it was a million, they got a ransom note. Somebody wanted, I think it was 2.9 million and they were, and the museum was willing to work with the person. So how real is the, is the reward anyway? I really liked your impersonation of Anthony Amore. Yeah, is that the moment that you were, that, uh, the turbo referenced when he said the, the FBI told the Gardner museum to butt out? I know what you're talking about. He said that they that they threatened to arrest them or prosecute them right. if if they made a deal. And if you go back, that is not exactly what happened. One, at one time, at, shortly after she resigned, when she was at um, the Kennedy School as a Kennedy Fellow, 
Ann Hawley said, I was pursuing an investi- a lead that could have ended this, and I was told that I ran the risk of being arrested. And then when the gardener hired this Watergate attorney, uh, Lenzer, who just recently died, according to Kirchian's book, I don't know how he knows this, but he says that the FBI told the U.S. attorney to send a letter to the museum that if they didn't share all the information that they had, that, that Lenzer came up with or the, the museum came up with privately, that they ran the risk of prosecution. So I think they, you know, that shows to me that they're a little bit worried about some details of the investigation. I, that's concerning that they even did that. And then Frank Hatch, who was the head trustee at the time, said, you know, you're casting a pall over our cooperative efforts and, you know, we don't like being intimidated. So, but it wasn't literally like you can't make a deal privately. You know, that was never said. And then later on, when after the the main media event of Youngworth trying to make a deal with Youngworth, which was not was called off by Youngworth because his lawyer said, you know, danger, you know, you're you're not, you're not, you don't have the legal protections you need to consummate this. And that's why he stopped, he says. And then, you know, he's it's not really disagreed by. Uh, Donald Stern or Sullivan or any of the other people that have stated it, they just said, well, we're, you know, they weren't really happy with whatever. So then the museum continued to pursue it. Holly was brought before, before a grand jury. So there's been kind of some harassment of, of the museum getting involved. And, um, and then in a 2005 Smithsonian article, Holly had some very cynical things to say about the investigation and then that, and then it was the, at that point that Anthony Amori was brought in, and he became sort of the face of the investigation. And Hawley stepped back, which I think, from the standpoint of the museum, is another asset of having, you know, having this thing branded around Amore is when they go to replace Hawley and Hawley, you know, they're not going to find someone who wants to find art. They're looking for someone to do a good job running the museum, and probably everybody they had said. You know, I don't really want to get involved with this art recovery thing. I want to make the Gardner Museum the best museum it can be. And I wouldn't hire anyone that said anything else personally. And so that's probably what happened. And so they said, oh, no, don't worry. You know, we have we have a separate person that does that. They're, you know, they're branding around him. He's doing the voice for the for the audio walk. And he's not going anywhere. So he's part of the deal. I really think it's not realistic to blame him anyway for the art not being back, but I would like a more forthright conversation more than I want the art back. I want us to be able to have, to have a conversation about, you know, that this has gone on a long time where people are not being on the level and you have, you know, Boston media playing right along. And I find it troubling. Yeah. I think there's a general sense of frustration out there because I think people feel a little bit silenced. Yeah. Well, they should. They give the leads to the people that are willing to stick to the stick to the script. You know, you go out there, you kind of like throw you use Abath as a source of how the the how the robbery happened, but you throw a little shade his way. You kind of cast aspersions, you know, something about Dorchester or Donati or one of these whoever it is this year. You don't have to worry about getting the facts exactly right. As long as you, you know, as long as you stay with that general narrative, which they don't want to tell you who they are, but they want you to know who the crewish are, to use an Ulrich Boser term in an empty frames episode. 
So they want you to know there's this certain, you know, Dick Tracy bad guy kind of group over there on the other side of town who uh, they want to want to blame it on. And the other thing is, if it was that group, like, and, and someone, Erin Thompson, who's an art crime professor at John Jay College, she, she believes that's, that's who did it. And okay, I accept that. She says, but if they did it, you're not getting the art back. Those, those people are too volatile and, you know, disorganized to be able to, like, maintain the art. And she thinks it's, it's destroyed because she doesn't think that people of that lifestyle are going to be able to safely maintain the works of art over 30 years. Yeah, that's a pretty reasonable um, theory to have and really would love to speak with uh, Miss Thompson on that. You might get her. You might get her to do it. I, I heard her on um, Atlas Obscura uh, Virtual Gardner, Heist, uh, Gardner Museum Tour, which was great. Very cool. Now, to switch topics a little bit, you wanted to speak about the motion sensors in, at the museum. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, well, I want to kind of go over the history. Like, the motion sensors are not just these electronic devices that recorded what happened. They're sort of, um, they're now cultural totems or artifacts. You, you know, they're, they're a thing that we use as a way to talk about what happened. And uh, that transcends, you know, their mere recording of whatever happened, perhaps. Uh, so, and so they've had this interesting life. So the motion sensors originally started, they were mentioned um, two times in 1990 um, in articles May 13th and 14th. And they said, there, they have these motions of sensors that showed them going through three galleries. I don't know why they said three, because that number doesn't really make sense. There was art taken from three galleries, but it did not show anything in one. You can't get to the one without going through the other. So anyway, but they say three galleries, and but it's completely useless because they weren't connected to the, you know, the th the guards were tied up. So what was the point? So they they did mention the um, motion sensors, but they didn't really um, put any put put much weight in them. Well, the guy who was in charge of the uh, motion sensors, you know, who was the their technical consultant, a guy named Stephen Keller, who's going to be in a um, a Netflix four-part series in 2021 about the Gardner heist, he was not very happy with the interview he got with the FBI. He said, you know, if they interviewed me, them, other people, the way they interviewed me, uh, it's no wonder they haven't gotten anywhere. And they acted like they knew it all already. And he was very frustrated. So with the, with the experience. So then when Ulrich Bozer's book came out, Bozer mentioned that, the motion sensors did not show the thieves going into the blue room and uh, it was not picked up in the Boston Globe or any, any other media. It just kind of lived in, in Bozer's book. And then, um, and then that fact was again reiterated when Robert Whitman's book came out, Priceless, which I think was in 2011 or 2012. But again, you know, it's just the people who read the books. And sometimes if, if you know, you can read these books, it didn't really sh jump out at me when I first read Bo Bozer's book. You know, unless you have someone say, hey, that's, that's important. Um, you, may, you may miss the significance. So then um, in 2013, Kirkshian did an, a story about it. And he said, and right before the anniversary, and he said, this is new information that the FBI is looking at. Well, Kirkstein also says they never talked to him. So where does he get that this is new? They, everything they know about 
Everything that makes you suspicious about ABATH was known on March 19th. They knew about the motion, so they knew about the button you didn't put, they knew about the alarm you shut down. They knew all of that stuff. So, you know, it wasn't anything new, you know, and, they, and they'll talk about it as if this is some like new discovery, which it's not, which is another problem with the narrative that, that we get. So then they talked about, well, if, if ABATH was the only one who went in there, then that really implicates ABATH from the motion sensor information. But another problem is, is that they found the frame in, on the security director's desk, which is a little office off the, off the security station. So then the question is, well, if it was a first responder who took it, you know, after, after the fact when they came in, how did they manage to get into a separate crime scene, which was the, which was the security station, which smelled like mace and had had the, uh, the uh, computer printout and the hard drive or the video cassette taken from uh, the night's activities. There's no way that anyone could have, a first responder could have taken it and then put the frame in, you know, carried the frame into this other office. And why would they? So clearly that points to ABATH. So now you go, and so, so then what happens is, first you go from it, not from it being ignored, and then you have it slowly breaking out in the press. And then it becomes... Let's, you know, now it's like this big topic. Now they're actually like marketing the motion sensor information. You know, they're making, you know, they made videos and um, last scene podcasts. And now you can, they have an audio tour where you go through based on the audio on these motion sensors. And first of all, they, they overstate what the motion sensor shows. There are no footsteps in the motion sensors. There is no recording of what individuals did inside a given gallery. Those motion sensors were, were only in the door jams of the doors going in and out of the galleries. So any of this stuff about what they were doing, tracing their footsteps, um, is not accurate. It's not true. So what you get is you go from not getting any information to this overstating uh, of what the motion sensors actually say. And, and, you know, in the Whitman book and in the Kirchian book, and in the Bozer book, there's very little about the motion sensors because there's very little. All you need to know is that the thieves didn't go in there and Abath was the last guy. That's the only relevant part. All the rest is fluff. How, how certain are we that that's accurate? Well, they say that it's accurate. They say there was not only was he not recorded in going in that gallery, but in any gallery on the first floor. And Stephen Keller says there's no way you can beat that beat that motion sensor. This thing about doing a duck walk, it's ridiculous. You can't do that. There's no way to beat it. It's, you know, there's too many things and they tested it the next morning. It was working perfectly well. So then it's confirmed that Abbott had to have taken the uh, Che Tortoni off the wall. Well, in the most recent thing that um, Amore did with Bob Ward on Boston 25, he says, well, you know, you hate to point fingers at anybody. You know, if, you ha if you're not going to make use of the equipment, what is the point of having it? There's a lot of suspicious things going on with this guy. And now you have the motion sensor telling you, giving you information, but hey, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't working. Well, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe something else. Maybe it was a jet pack. But I mean, you, if that's the case, then there's no point in having, the, having it if you're not going to be informed by it. And the same thing goes with the, the alarm button. 
The alarm button, they reported six times in the Boston Globe that there was no alarm linking the, linking the museum with the police station. Well, that's not true. There's a silent alarm, which wasn't reported about. So then, you know, time passes. And then around 2005, they get around to saying that, oh, you know, there was an alarm button. And if he had only, you know, hadn't been coaxed away from it, you know, things might have been different. Well, you know, now it's like, you know, double past the um, statute of limitations. And, you know, years have gone by. If people had known that, you know, and his neighbors knew that maybe, you know, he was under suspicion, maybe they go, hey, you know, I did see him walking down the street with a guy that looked like one of the people in the uh, police um, sketches. Okay, so let hold on. Let's just uh, reset a little bit on the alarm. Um, what we're talking about is the alarm that Abbott intentionally set off right before the heist. He didn't set it off. He didn't set it off. Okay, so p- please explain. No, he there's a silent alarm, and they were in there for like up to three minutes talking to him. I mean, here's a guy who is a security guard who ran a you know illegal pay pay to get in. Sorry, can we back up a little bit further? I'm a little confused. So before the heist, um, you're talking about the part where Abbott opened the door? No, I'm not talking about when he opened the door. I'm talking about, well, even when he did open the door, there's a, there was, there's a silent alarm. The museum had a silent alarm. And he, so the fake cops come to the door, and they buzz it in, and he, and he says, according to the Boston Police report, he said, uh, Boston Police, and he let them in. Later, like 15 years later, he said, well, they said there was a disturbance. He didn't say that originally. That's new. But that has become part of the part of the story about how they tricked him about a disturbance somewhere. Right. But how would they have known that there would was a disturbance? There was an actual disturbance if they didn't create it. I mean, yeah, if someone came to your house and said, you know, calling about a disturbance in your house. Huh? You know, I'll let you know. I'll give you a call if I have a disturbance. So that's suspicious. Hadn't there actually been a disturbance? Well, there had been a disturbance in that um, the uh, the fire alarm had been gone, gone right. off. And the other guard, Randy, said that that was when he saw, he thought, oh, they must be responding to that, even though it wasn't hooked into the Boston uh, Police Department. Maybe they heard it or somebody else heard it. Or maybe they set the alarm off. Yeah, maybe they did. Right. So that was a pretext for shutting it down. So Randy thought, well, you know, they, they're probably there for that. But but Abath has written about this several times. Or he's written about it at least twice. He's been interviewed by CNN. He's been interviewed. He did a story core presentation. He was interviewed by Kirchian a few times. He has never said that the fire alarm figured into why he thought they were there. Now, of course, he may not want to bring up the fire alarm because then he has to discuss it and he has to talk about why he turned it off. So it's a very convenient thing for him to avoid. But the fact is, Abath has never said, I thought they were there because of the fire alarm. They kind of added that in, in the uh, last scene podcast. Rodolico says, well, the fire alarm had gone off. But right, okay, that's why you think he let them in. But he has not, he's had ample opportunities to explain it. And he's never said anything about that fire alarm being part of his explanation. So then he lets them in and you're saying that that is the opportunity he could have taken to trigger the silent alarm and he never did, right? right. That silent yeah, so alarm he had a was... silent alarm. So he comes in and Marge Galis was, you had Marge Galis on. You go into the inn and there's a foyer there with a glass door. So now you have a chance before you hit that buzzer for the second door, you have a chance to, you know, 
look over the people that are there. Now, a security guard who, you know, is in the, the drug subculture knows what, knows what a policeman looks like. You know, he, you know, this, Abath went to art school for a year. You know, he has an eye for visual detail. He's tra- he was trained to know as a security guard, as an artist, you know, as a guy trying to score drugs from people he doesn't know, what a policeman looks like. He had plenty of time. Then they come in. They, according to him, they were there about the disturbance on the street. They talked to him. He had plenty of time. If he had any, any question, he could have pushed the silent alarm. He didn't, they didn't have firearms. I mean, that's the first thing I look for if I want to know if someone's a cop, and I'm not sure. Are they armed? So he stepped away from that silent alarm, and that was it. Then, then there was no way the police were going to come. So what's the point of having a silent alarm if you're not going to be suspicious about someone who doesn't push it? You know, so there's two functions. You, you know, you either have, I would say, you have, you push it, and then you know there's someone trying to rob your museum, or you, or it's not pushed, and you know that you have a guard that's helping people rob the museum. With, with, within a, you know, within a probability, and then you accumulate all these other suspicious things, and the weight comes down. Well, if you do that, this is all known the first week. They're not even putting it in the paper. They're not putting his name in the paper for 20 years. And the only reason they even mentioned his name in the paper was because um, he brought it out because he was writing a book and he wanted his name out there. No one made the decision to put his name out there. Now, in 1969, you know, you hear about Carmelo Morlino going to prison for a bank heist. When he was in that bank heist, he was a lookout. And... uh, the guards, some of whom turned out worrying on it, at least one of them, they put they put the guards' names and their street addresses on the front page of the Globe. Meanwhile, with Abath, we wait twenty years to know what his his actual name is. What 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 do you think? Uh, what do you think that's all about? I don't think I don't think there was really. It seems there's a lack of sincerity in trying to determine who it was that was who robbed the place. I think a real key is these May the May fourteenth article. May 13th articles that were in the Globe, where they were saying that it was people worldwide that they were looking at. You know, none of these people, you know, there's a freedom of people, you know, Bozer and Kirchin, these guys all do freedom of information checks on Turner and all these guys. And there's nothing that any of these people were ever questioned in the first two years. In, In Bozer's book, he says, Turner was, you know, looked at early, but and it's in all caps. But when you go, Early is two years after the fact that somebody said that somebody said Turner knew where the art was. And then it said, you know, and a month later, his fingerprints were sent down to Quantico. Well, you know, that doesn't sound like high priority to me. When Turner went for his um, appeal, he said that they, that he was entrapped. And the, and the government argued, no, he was not entrapped because he had a predisposition for this kind of crime based on and they referenced his convictions and arrests, maybe not his arrests, but at least his convictions in 89-90. If his behavior was warranted him being the kind of person that would rob an armored car uh, depot in 1997, why wasn't it the kind of uh, record that would warrant him being questioned about the Gardner heist in 1990? He was arrested for unarmed robber, armed burglary 60 days after the Gardner heist. Why wasn't he questioned? 
Now, maybe he has an alibi. I don't know. But, you know, there, there's this whole, you know, the state police were had surveillance on, on TRC Automotive. You know, none of these people were, were discussed as suspects in that time. So, yeah, that's another question. I don't know why um, they didn't take a harder line, but that would be part of the conversation that we're not having. And just for reference, I want to uh, identify that you're speaking about David Turner when you said that he was uh, arrested and uh, put in jail. Uh, and then you referenced the uh, the planned armored car robbery in 1999. And he served 21 years and he just recently, I believe, two years ago or October of 2019. He just got out October 2019. He got out and he never had anything. You know, he never said that he knew anything or had any information. He's out. He did try to appeal based on the fact that he, he said he was entrapped and they said, well, you weren't entrapped because you had a predisposition for this kind of crime based on your behavior in 8990. It seemed like a prime suspect that you'd question in 1990, but they did not question him in 1990. And how do you know that? Well, one, because Ulrich Bozer did a um, Freedom of Information Act request and and it didn't come up. And he said he was, you know, he was looked at in ni- early in 1992. I think there'd be a record of it. And then the other thing is, if he had been questioned in 1990, his whole defense on his appeal was that they tra- entrapped me because they think I was involved in the Gardner heist. Well, if he'd been a question, then he could say they were questioning me back in 1990 about the Gardner heist. But he didn't. He never claimed, made any claim that he had been questioned about the Gardner heist until he was arrested and in 1997. And then he claims that one of the interrogators said, we know you did the Gardner heist. And that the whole basis of him being in there is his own word that somebody said in there about that's the, that's the extent of anybody linking David Turner to the actual heist. Well, uh, you know, this it is interesting talking about this, and uh, I, I just finished uh, Casey Sherman's book, Hunting Whitey, which talks a lot yeah, about it yeah, it talks a lot about uh, how dirty the FBI in Boston was at the time, and uh, you know, this is right around the time where John Connolly was double dipping and working with Whitey Bulger, and also working as an FBI uh, as a boss. I'm not sure his role, but he was later convicted with uh, racketeering offenses and uh, sentenced to 40 years in prison for this double dipping. And it was all at the Boston FBI office. Well, one thing is, is that Bulger, uh, that's another great example. Whitey Bulger was never questioned. He was a high echelon informant at the time of the Gardner heist. And he was not questioned about the Gardner heist then or, and then, um, a New England cable news guy asked Delorier, are you going to ask Bulger about the Gardner heist? And he says, the two cases are unrelated. We're not going to talk to him about it. So Bulger was never questioned about the Gardner heist. However, I do not think that what is going on here is, is corruption of, of the FBI, of why things went sour on the investigation. And the reason I think that is they wouldn't be pointing locally with very little evidence if they were, if, if the local could, could, blow back on them. So they'd be going, oh, it's these South American drug lords. I mean, if you want to make an unsubstantiated claim, why put it in your own backyard if you were involved? You're going to try to put some distance between you and them. 
And um, I just don't think it would be, you know, for the same reason that, you know, it's not a very profitable crime. There's not really a way to make money on that. And, and they would know that. And, you know, in some ways they were riding high back then uh, in 1990. They had, you know, they had, it was, that was less than six months after the, they had tape recorded the mafia induction ceremony in, in Medford. And they had the Italian mafia on the run. And um, John Connolly was getting eased out. He was gone by the end of the year. I think there's something going on. I, I think we're entitled to an explanation, but I don't find the explanation that there was some kind of FBI corruption going on. It's not, I think, there's evidence of that.